This is Creators Canvas with host Bridge May Sky. Namaste. Frogtown Community Radio, St. Paul, Twin Cities. Thank you for listening on WFNU 94.1 FM. In this premiere episode of Creators Canvas, an interview with Barry Kornhauser, the award-winning playwright of the Children's Theatre Company's production of Corduroy. It is currently showing now through April 2nd. In this conversation, we discuss Barry's own inspirations, his unique creative process for initial writing, and how a project comes to finalizing that staged magic. All right, let's get into it. So you're the playwright. Yep, that's what they tell me. Okay, for Corduroy at the uh, Children's Theater Company. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I wanted to ask, so your experience of adapting books, great books, into great plays, okay? Yeah. So you have a career writing plays for family audiences. Mm -hmm. So how did you even first get started in the world of theater? More or less accidentally. Uh, I grew up in urban New Jersey and didn't have a lot of those kinds of theatrical experiences, at least not very favorable ones. And in fact, as by the time I was in middle school, my uh, classmates and I were so bad when we were taken on field trips to theaters that we were pretty much banned from every East Coast theater <laughs> that existed. Uh, but uh, late on in my uh, secondary school career, when I was you know, a junior in, uh, in high school, I had a Shakespeare-loving teacher who was convinced that she could convert us heathens, decided to take us uh, from New Jersey to Connecticut to see a Shakespeare play there. And uh, it was not only any old Shakespeare play, but a history, no less, which are probably the worst plays you could take kids that don't like Shakespeare to see. Um, <laughs> but this was during the Vietnam War years, and the production kind of blew my mind. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Uh, instead of playing it very traditionally, it was what we call a concept version. So the director was choosing to turn it into an anti-war piece. And there's a kind of a line of metaphor in the play in which war is compared to sports. And, uh, and so kings would send soldiers into battle just for the fun of it, uh, you know, not caring about the consequences to life and limb and property and whatnot. Uh, and to convey that, instead of the soldiers wearing suits of armor, and this, by the way, this was Henry V, inside the soldiers wearing suits of armor and using bows and arrows and swords and spears, their uniforms were all bastardized sports jerseys and whatnot. Um, and their weapons were stickball bats and hockey sticks and frisbees would fly. And it was just a lot of fun. And I think it was the first time that I didn't take my playbill and turn it into a paper airplane to throw at the stage, but instead went to read um, who had created this. And it was a young director at the time named Michael Kahn. There's a follow-up to that story many years later, if you're interested. But uh, seeing that made me start to think that this theater had some kind of interesting possibilities for telling stories and reaching people like it had reached me as a teenager. Uh, and then in college, although I was uh, I majored in what's called child development and behavior, uh, I did take a playwriting course and the professor wanted to push me into doing more. So when he would direct plays on campus, I would be his stage manager. He would insist on that. So he was trying to teach me a little bit more about the, the field. 
And uh, I wrote a play in college, not for children, and that was one of the first student plays they ever produced, and that was kind of fun. And then later on, an upperclassman of mine who was in that playwriting class I took had a job as an artistic director of the theater. He got in touch with me um, and asked if I'd be interested in writing a play for the children's company he had. And, and at the same time, stage managed like I had done at college to help earn my keep. And so one thing led to another. Starting then, that was back in the early 1980s. Um, I've been doing it ever since. Wow, that's amazing. I, it just seemed like you were meant to do this. And what's really inspiring is it's that one teacher, you know, just... To have a mentor of some sort, to somebody who believes in, in you and also believes in, in something that, they, that he or she thinks they should share with you. Yeah, made a difference. Would you say, how did it, how did you find your way to, to more focusing on plays that are just, you know, for family audiences? Mm -hmm. You know, you went from Shakespeare with the, yeah. I love the whole sport and, you know, say sport equipment and stuff instead of swords and stuff. So how have you found yourself really just focusing on those family audiences? Well, as I mentioned, what I studied in college was child development and behavior, which was a combination of um, psychology, anthropology, and education. I always had an interest in, in working for and with young people. I was a camp counselor all my summers in high school, college, and whatnot. Uh, when I first left college, I was a school teacher for a number of years, worked at a daycare before that. So it was always in, uh, a group of people that I, I thought were too often marginalized themselves, neglected, and had a lot to offer both as an audience and as human beings. Uh, and that we potentially, as writers for children, have something to offer them uh, because, you know, when you're a young person, you're still exploring the world, you're exploring yourself and others, and theater gives you an opportunity to kind of reflect on that journey of discovery you're making. So it seemed like a lovely audience, and they are. They're, I think, the best of audiences. Uh, so that was uh, uh, something that was a no-brainer for me, in a sense. When I had that opportunity to write for children's theater, it was exactly what I would hope to have done, and have been doing it ever since. I mentioned to you that there was an extension to the story. I've actually, in all my years, I've only written one play geared for adult audiences. And that was an adaptation in, in, in rhyming couplets of Cyrano de Bergerac. And I mention it now because, again, as I told you, when I went to see that first Shakespeare play that sort of opened my eyes to the possibilities of the genre, the director was this young man named Michael Kahn. So 30 years later, maybe, Michael Kahn is now the artistic director of the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C., which is the premier classical theater in America. He's a century tired. Um, but I had done this adaptation of Cyrano for the theater where I was working, where I was first hired many years ago to start writing children's plays and stage manage. Um, and the managing director of my theater knew that the Shakespeare Theater, the next season, was going to do Cyrano de Bergerac. He thought I should send the adaptation I wrote to this Michael Kahn, and I thought that would be a silly idea, it would just get thrown in the garbage can because I don't have an agent, I'm a name nobody knows, and um, so he wouldn't even do that. But he convinced me to do it. And so, Bridge, I found uh, a binder that my daughter had in nursery school. She was, she was that age back then, and she didn't need any more. It had all these Barbie stickers and magic marker scribbles on it. It was fluorescent pink. And instead of you know spending 99 cents to buy a binder in the, in, the, in, the, in the store, which I thought would get thrown away right away, so I'll just put it in this ugly pink binder because I didn't want to waste a new one. And I sent the script off to the Shakespeare Theater. And a couple weeks later, I got a call back that Michael Kahn wanted to meet with me about my script. And we did meet, and he told me that Cyrano was the first play he had ever read as a kid. It was in his family's bookshelf, that he had never in all his years directed it because he never really found an English language version that he 
life until he read my script. And it was, it was all very flattering. And I said right away, I'm, I said, Mr. Khan, I'm really surprised you even read my script because again, you, know, you don't know who I am and uh, it's unsolicited. It wasn't submitted by an agent or anything of that sort, nor did you request it. He said, well, when I opened the mailing envelope, there was this hideous pink binder inside there and I couldn't help but look inside and see what it was in. And he said after a page or two, I knew this was the play I wanted to do. And I told him then that it was because of him as a young director of this Henry V I saw in Connecticut that I was writing plays at all. So it was sort of a big thank you. And the thank you continued because that year in Washington, D.C., their version of the Tony Awards are called the Helen Hayes Awards. And Cyrano won a lot of awards, including the best play and also best director that year. So I felt it was sort of a nice way to pay back Michael for having gotten me started in theater. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And now I'm going to go look up uh, Cyrano. And is there any record of that play that you originally do you still keep your playwrights that you've adapted do you keep archive oh, sure. versions yeah yeah it's it's a, it's a it's a published version now too it's published with um uh, dramatic publishing and so you know people have access to it uh but there are a lot of you know adaptations of serial the version right? i mean there was uh even a, a recent movie version so uh it's done a lot but what was unique i think about mine is i kind of Firstly, wrote it in couplets, which is how the originals were written, though in French. And also, I think I found a vein of humor in it that's in the original uh, that often gets kind of neglected. All, all the, hero the heroism and the, the pathos is there, but sometimes the humor is passed by. And, and I happen to like making people laugh. And so there's a lot of that in this version, too. Yeah, it seems like you really know how to bring joy with depth. And it's, it's beautiful that you from your own story, you see that opportunity in children. I feel like young youth, the youth, you know, because they're just mm -hmm. sponges. Let's see. My next question would be, mm -hmm. how do you find, like, so Corduroy, right? It's a great story. Where do you find that those projects that you're like, oh, I need to make this a play. I need to adapt to this. Like, do you just find it randomly? Do you go to libraries? Do you pick stuff from your childhood? Like, how did you come about deciding that Corduroy, this is going to be your project. Well, it is. I have three kids. They're all adults now. And of course, Corduroy was in our bookshelf. We read it many, many times. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, over 50 years now and it has enduring popularity. It's on lots of lists of the best 100 picture books of all time. It's, you know, a little story with a big heart, all of that. But to be truthful with you, I never even would have attempted to, to ask to do an adaptation. For, for the first 50 years of the book's life, the, the estate of Don Freeman, the author of it, refused to have any stage adaptations done, and that was sort of a, a given. But the Children's Theatre Company has such a sterling reputation in this nation. You know, it's the flagship children's theatre. It's the only children's theatre that won the Tony Award is the best regional theatre in America. Why not? And the, the, so it was the Children's Theatre Company that asked for permission to adapt it. And I think because of its reputation, that was granted. And then they were kind enough to ask me to do that adaptation. I had done a couple other adaptations for CTC before. Um, and uh, so in this case, it wasn't my discovery. In fact, it was a great surprise and pleasure to have that opportunity to, to work with a book. But it wouldn't have happened without Children's Theatre Company. So when you're, when you're sitting down and you're mm -hmm. in that creative process of, you know, adapting these stories, do you have like a routine? Do you have like a set routine that you do to work? Or do you just kind of let it, that inspiration come to you? Like, what is your creative process? It's pretty chaotic, Bridge. Uh, 
and again, it, it, it's probably different for every different project because I, I think the, the, the content and the form you're working with sort of dictates the, the way that it may be created. But you asked about me sitting down. I'm not a big sitter, actually. Uh, I learned a big word years ago called peripatetic, you know, which sort of means you, you pace and wander around. And in my home office, uh, it actually has two doors, one leading into the hallway, one leading into the bedroom. And so I can make I can walk circles as I'm working. And uh, we, I live in a very old house. It was built in 1822. And they, there are fancy words for this, but there's in the, that hallway in that, in that second floor uh, where the office is, there's this huge um, full-size mirror. And when the, do, the show has a lot of clowning and there's a lot of physical humor that has to be acted out, I often find this I'm making my pacing that I have to stop at the mirror and, and try to see if something will work physically. Uh, I'm with my own body and I'm not an actor. So if, if, if I could pull it off, then maybe somebody who's really good could do it much better and make it happen. So, it, it, and when you talk about um, the focus, I, I do believe there are moments of illumination where things are flowing and you have an idea and it seems to be working, but there are also those moments of incubation where things are sort of slowly hatching. And even those that sometimes I think writers call that writer's block or whatever it might be. I, I don't really believe in that, but I do think some things take more time. And the nice thing again about working with Children's Theatre Company is they give playwrights that time. They're very nurturing. Um, we don't hurry a play along. We do, you know, there are lots of opportunities to workshop. I think for Corduroy, well over 20 drafts were written. Uh, and actually, even up to the very day the show opened, we were still doing rewrites and whatnot this time around. Um, uh, and uh, so some of it's done with, with the, the actors and the director in the room. Some of it's done uh, in, at home, uh, sitting out behind the keyboard. Lots of it's done in front of the mirror or pacing around the hallways and whatnot. Um, I'll tell you, this is just a, a story that meant a lot to me in terms of incubation. I, w I was invited to a theater conference in Tromsø, Norway, which is 300 miles up in the Arctic Circle. And I was invited there on a fellowship in order to look at the, uh, the kind of the work that auteurs in Europe do to create work. And they also have uh, that leisure of a lot of time to, to, to create, um, well, you know, where the government's funding their work, which is nice. But so I spoke to a bunch of them and there was a group, I think from Belgium and the, the artist director told me they were working on a play, Hensel and Credel. It seems like a very simple story, but in the production that they had was brilliant. Um, and I talked to her after that. In the production, it's just one character who's sort of the narrator, and it's a woman um, swathed in white, um, almost looks like a mummy. That you know, if you if you if she raised her arm, her sleeve would hang down to the floor, almost kimono-like. Um, and um, she was standing on a small platform with a gridded floor, and 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 there was a piano player. Uh, and she would tell the story, and it wasn't a different language, of course, but it didn't matter because we all know the story of Hensel and Gretel. But what happened at one point is, and you wondered uh, why she's wearing this white robe, uh, they used it as a projection surface, you know, so she would talk about birds flying in the sky, she would open her arms, and birds would be projected, and she would uh, raise and lower her arms and look like the birds were flying in the sky. She would, you know, a moon could be projected in her hand. It was really just beautiful. And when the witch is pushed into the oven, you understood why she was standing on this gridded platform, because in the platform was a fan and also red and orange lights. So all the white fabric blew up in the air over it, got lit in red, and she looked like she was on fire. It was gorgeous and powerful. Um, and so I said to her, how did you come up with this brilliant way to do Hunter Gretel? And she said, well, you know, we had worked as a company. We were working on it for a couple of years and nothing much was happening with it. We thought, just read the story. You don't need to see our play version. And she said, so we decided to all go on a vacation. And she went, this is kind of captures who she is. She decided to go to um, uh, Sarajevo during the conflict they had in Bosnia and all that at the time. And she said she was standing on the street corner 
uh, and there was an artist with a canvas and an e on an easel, and he was using uh, charcoal from burnt buildings and brick dust from crumbled buildings, and he was creating this this painting with that as his medium. And uh, kids started to gather around him. She started to watch him too. And when he had a nice crowd, uh, he pulled a handkerchief out of his pocket. He blew his nose and he opened the handkerchief and there was a beautiful picture in it. And all the kids, wow, he made a picture with his nose. And she said it was right then and there that she knew what to do. That was taking that white fabric and projecting image on it. And she said, I wasn't thinking consciously of Hensel and Gretel, but it was in the back of my head, of course. And this became a moment where I knew how we could do this production. You know, why, why have this woman on the platform in the white belt in the projection? And she said, and that's what I think about the moments of in, uh, incubation. You know, you go, you do something else, you find something to do, but it's always sitting there waiting for this spark to ignite that creativity. Oh my gosh. And see, that's what I love about art because it comes, it can come from anywhere. And yes, I love it. It's like you keep it filed, you know, yeah. the, that's why it's great to explore all forms of art because you never know what it's going to be relevant. That's right, Bridge. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's fun and exciting. So I'm wondering, so, you know, as a, a retired perfectionist myself, okay, <laughs> so what did I would do with this creative stuff, you know, in my head, it's one thing. Then once I put it out to other people, I can't imagine what it would be like. So when you're, you know, there and you're rewriting and, re, you know, readapting what you originally, do you get the final say? Yeah. Well, again, wonderful thing for me about theater is that it's such a collaborative art. Uh, and I, for all the weaknesses I have, I know that there are folks with the strengths to make up for those and, and, and make the finished product a much better one. So yes, as the playwright, you do have the final say, or you're supposed to in a way. And one thing that's nice again about um, theater uh, as a collaborative art is that you have all these partners that can help create the finished piece. And if you're open to that collaboration, good things can happen. So where I might have the final say, I'm also very, very eager to hear what everybody else has to say. And ultimately I can say yes or no. And more often than not, I say yes, because again, I think some folks have ideas they never thought of or ideas that are better than mine. And it's nice to be able to share in that way. So again, as we were working on Corduroy, the director, the designers, the actors, even the crew all have wonderful ideas to share. And we're, you know, we want to hear those ideas. Uh, some work and some don't, some ideas of mine don't work. And that's what we explore um, in the rehearsal process. Um, so uh, again, if you're if you're uh, open to that kind of input, it can be, I think, very, very valuable. And, uh, and, and Children's Theatre Company are especially good about that. I always tell a story that uh, Peter Brush, the first play I worked on um, with Peter at Children's Theatre Company was called Reeling. And it was a piece done without any spoken words at all. So you're trying to tell the story very clearly just through the physical visual vocabularies. We're having a good time with it. And Peter invited the high school students to come and watch one rehearsal or more. And I remember one fellow, I think he was like 16 years old, watched the scene and he said he had an idea for an ending for that scene. And sometimes they would not feel comfortable at all even making some kind of suggestion like that or opening their mouth. But again, Peter welcomed that kind of input and we heard what the fellow had to say and it became one of my favorite moments of the play. And it was created by a 16 year old who was just allowed to, to give his input. Um, so again, it's the collaborative nature of the art form that makes it, I think, so special. Oh, absolutely. So that makes me think of another question then. Mm -hmm. What is the most challenging part? Like, have you had barriers or certain things that it's hard to uh, work through or what can come up? 
it's, I, I, there are plenty of them, but I think it's, it's different depending on the project. So if we just talk about corduroy for a minute, let's look at some of the challenges. Firstly, I said I read the book to all three of my kids when they were little, and it doesn't take more than about five minutes to read this book. So the first challenge is how do you take a five-minute story and turn it into a full-length play? Because again, you can't expect audiences to pay for a ticket for a show that's only five minutes long. Uh, and to do that, you want to make sure that the um, embellishments you make um, honor the intent of the author and the sweet spirit of the book. So that's the first challenge. Next is um, sort of dealing with the characters in their own ways. So for example, um, Beyond the character of Corduroy, there's a, a night watchman. And in, in this new production, it's actually called a nighttime security guard because it's not a man, it's played by a woman, the inimitable Autumn Ness. And um, the thing is, the night watchman can never see the living incarnation of Corduroy, only the toy bear version of Corduroy. So in a sense, I was challenged to create two scenes for two one-person plays that had to connect with each other. So in the first, Corduroy creates all this comic mayhem while he's looking for his button in the store. And in the follow-up scene, the Night Watchman has to face the comical repercussions of all the mayhem that Corduroy has, has created. So that was challenging. It's hard enough to write a one-person show, let alone write two of them within the context of a single one. Um, also, in lengthening the story, uh, that, you know, there's that challenge to how do you make the story longer and still honor the book and all? Well, I did some research, and Don Freeman, the author, when he was creating it, was especially he was very interested in what goes on in the department store when it's closed. And so that led me to a place I could go with the story. If you know the story, Corduroy is looking for his missing button, so someone will love him and take him home. He thinks he needs that. Uh, and in the book, he goes to, the, I guess it's the home furnishing department, has a little episode there. He's, the night watchman finds him there uh, uh, and puts him back in the toy story, and that's the end. So I thought, well, my goodness, if he's really looking for his button, if that's his objective, that's his goal, that's so important to him, he's not going to stop after that one try. So it gave me the freedom to move from department to department in his department store as he continued to seek his button. And then the final challenge was you meet two uh, uh, characters in the book, Lisa and her mom. Lisa's the little girl who wants to bring Cordery home, and her mom's the one who says no. And so I thought, it would be really intriguing to know what went on that night in Lisa's home. And another way of extending the story was to take a look at that and give her a personal journey like Corduroy's, you know, with the same sort of struggle. She wants something, which is Corduroy, just as he wants something, a button. Uh, and what goes on um, in her home that evening to try to get her mom to let her get the, the toy bear. Uh, and that also was a way of showing folks that these two characters, Corduroy and Lisa, were really made for each other because they're going through similar journeys. So those are just kind of the kinds of challenges. You know, and then again, there's a lot of uh, fun stuff that happens in, in the CTC production that requires all sorts of, you know, remarkable technical work, almost magic on stage. And that becomes a challenge, but not for the writer, but for the designers and the director and the crew and cast to put up with all that. Okay, so does any stories like right away come to your mind? I'm always curious, has there ever been like things gone wrong, uh, big time glitches, funny sto horror stories, anything that comes to your mind like, oh, that did not go well. I definitely would have did something different the next time. Oh yeah, probably more than I could think of. Some that happened to me, one that will always stand up is, as I mentioned to you, when I was first working at this theater in my hometown, where I live now in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I was working as a stage manager and then a playwright, um, 
I wrote a play, uh, it was kind of loosely based on uh, an imagined surreal childhood of the surrealist artist Rene Magritte, it's called This Is Not A Pipe Tree. Now mind you, I'm the, I'm the author of it, so I've written a play. I'm also the stage manager, which means I see this play every day for months and months and months. So I should be pretty familiar with it. I remember one day, the, the, one of the actors in the production, uh, I feel four actors in the piece, one of them got sick and they, they, you know, they had a booking, they didn't want to let it go, and they asked me if I could fill in for that actor. I said, Barry, you, you've watched this play hundreds of times, you wrote this play, should be a piece of cake for you. And, and I, I thought, well, maybe I can. Bridge, within five minutes on the stage, I was totally lost. I had no idea where I was, what to do, where to go. It was just a horror story. Um, and so that kind of thing uh, happens. And so I've learned from that, don't ever do that again. And I can remember another time I was asked to act in a play and it was being tour, it was tour, touring. And um, there, it was in a movie theater or an old converted movie theater. And unlike a theater, it didn't really have wings. Where, where the stage ended, it just dropped away. And I remember I had like $400 worth of magic tricks that I was in charge of, I was doing a scene with. And I had to walk off stage with all this stuff. And I walked right into thin air and dropped about four feet down the ground, smashed up all this expensive equipment and myself pretty badly. So those are kinds of things that, <laughs> that, that have happened to me. Well, that's great. I you know, and I totally understand that because when you're sitting and you're in the audience over and over and over, um, now I've been at speaking engagements and when you're on stage, it doesn't matter how much you think you know or how confident I was or, you know, I've been going to whatever. When I'm looking at those hundreds of people, yeah. So do you do you get nervous? What What makes you nervous? Oh, I'm always afraid that I'm going to do a bad job. Uh, uh, you know, again, when, when uh, uh, I'm given a commission to write a play, my first concern and fear is that I'm just not going to do it well. Uh, and um, and uh, I don't think that'll ever go away. And I always still think sometimes that everything I write could be better if I had more time and more, more brains to, to make it uh, work uh, better than it does. I, I, I guess I have a maybe, maybe 15 or so published plays uh, by major publishers, but I have a lot more plays they never, I mean, in fact, those 15 plays, I don't think I ever submitted one to a publisher. Um, when I do a work for a children's theater company, they have a publishing wing, and if they like it, they'll automatically put it into their catalog. And um, I've been approached by another publisher for a number of my works that they you know, may have seen at a conference or in a production somewhere. Uh, I'm always kind of nervous about um, sending them off because it's sort of um, incises them in stone. You, know, you can't change it once it's in print that way. And I always like to continue working on plays. Um, in fact, um, the, the children's theater companies um, publishing company that they're connected with is called Plays for New Audiences. And they don't make uh, paper scripts. They, it's all digital. And the good thing about that is, besides the fact that it uh, saves paper and trees, is that uh, it's, it, it, it's easy to make changes in it. So for example, while Corduroy is published, after this, this, um, this version opened, I learned some things that I won't want to change and put into the published version. And now that it's digital, it'll be easy to do that as other companies decide if they want to, to take it on. Um, but um, part of that all has to do with my fear of not doing a good enough job. And uh, I would want to work more on this play before I would submit it to a publisher, that sort of thing.
I think like actors and directors, you know, it's always scary opening night, you know, all things go well. Uh, and, you know, and it's always a surprise. Um, sometimes I, I think the play is pretty good and it may not get that great a response. And other times I think eh, it's not so hot and people love it. So it's always yeah. uh, a puzzle to me. Yes, it sounds like you're a bit of a perfectionist as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you read like the critics, what the critics write? I mean, do you take, it sounds like you might be taking, you take that to heart. So have you ever had really like any bad reviews or criticisms? And then of course, you know, the positive, I would imagine. Yeah, no, I, I do read them. I won't pretend that I don't. And because I think I, I can learn something from them. I also, you know, have, I don't, I haven't done it recently, but I will also submit scripts to various um, kind of play contests, not because I'm looking for accolades, but because I'm looking for feedback. And again, for people in the know, that's helpful. And uh, you know, one of my favorite playwrights is Tom Stoppard, and he said something to the effect, yeah, I will take advice from everybody and their uncle, and I'll use what I like and discard what I don't. And that's how I feel about it. And you know, uh, reviewers you know, are, are interesting. And, and so for example, I remember I, I did an adaptation once of a play, and there was a line straight out of the book, and one of the review comments was how the play seemed really good and really realistic, but this one line was just so out of place. And yet it was a line right from the book that the reviewer didn't read the book and didn't know that. Those kinds of things will happen. Um, and sometimes there are accidents that happen on stage on an opening night uh, and the reviewer doesn't actually know it was an accident or wasn't meant to happen and you know, it becomes part of the review. But you just take all that. Uh, I'm not troubled terribly by them. Unfortunately, you know, I, I, People said mostly kind things, um, which is helpful. Um, but it just comes with the territory bridge, right? Absolutely. There's always going to be haters. <laughs> so what's your favorite play, not that you've written, that you've seen of all time, would you say? And then what's the most recent play that you just went and gone and attended? Okay. Well, I, I, I can't say that I have a favorite. I mentioned that I do like the work of the playwright Tom Stoppard. And I actually like some of his early, more um, uh, interesting work. I mean, just play like travesties, for example, which I think is a lot of fun. Uh, and and uh, I don't particularly like reading Shakespeare. I, if I see a really good Shakespeare production, like the Henry V they mentioned when I was in high school, uh, I really, really find those memorable uh, playgoing experiences. I can think of the, I mentioned the Shakespeare Theater where Michael Kahn was the artistic director. While I was working on a play for him, you know, I went to see some of the plays they were doing as I was there uh, anyway. And I saw two amazing Shakespeare productions, one of Richard III, another history, and another one of King Lear, one of the great tragedies. And they were mind-blowingly cool and good. Um, so those were great theater experiences. Um, most recently, there's a, a young company in the town where I live um, called Three Sheets, and they're doing some kind of interactive work that's sort of fun and interesting. So just about a weekend ago, I saw a piece of theirs that's new called Camping, where they take the audience on this interactive journey built around the whole notion of exploring the outdoors in that way. Um, so uh, I, I tend to like things that are immersive, you know, participatory in that way, and uh, and um, different and 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 uh it has some some element of whimsy or, or deep darkness in it so um uh, i'm trying to try and think of uh, other example uh, uh the last play i read was um a piece from south africa about the transgender experience um uh and uh so i work with a lot of people from various marginalized communities and what's kind of interested in work that's uh, connected to their lives and that's the scoop now so Wonderful. Okay. 
And I love that you are a mover. I'm also a person that doesn't just sit. Like I work, I'm always moving and shaking. So when you get, I wouldn't say burnt out, or you just need a, a break. And do you have any, do you go on vacations? Do you have fun things that you do that has nothing to do with your you know, line of work? Uh, yeah, actually, the, the sad truth is, is I haven't taken a vacation in years. Uh, but when I do have a change of pace of work, like for example, I was just in uh, in Minneapolis with the children's theater company for a little over a week. And although it was work every day, it wasn't a sense of vacation because it's moving away from my full-time job. So that's a change of pace. What I do is um, for, for relaxation and recreation is kind of simple things like garden in the backyard. I like reading a lot. I have a little koi pond in my yard, so that's sort of my zen place. I'm listening to the babble of a little waterfall, watching the fish. And, uh, but nothing more complex than I, I do. I, I was a uh, an Eagle Scout, so I really like the outdoors. I like nature a lot. I like camping and that sort of thing. So anytime I can take a hike in the woods, even in the, in the area where I live, that's always a pleasure. But those ex become experiences too few and far between these days. Absolutely. So. Now you said you have three children, grown children now, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have any of them found their way into a similar line of work or field? Or? None of them are, I have two sons and a daughter in that order. And the daughter's more, maybe a little bit interested in theater. The boys decided after watching how hard I worked for so little <laughs> financially, I think they've got scared away from that a little bit, but their, their, their creativity um, is, uh, is expressed through music uh, and, uh, uh, so they're sort of, you know, both doing things along those lines. Okay. Do they do they attend your plays? Well, yeah, well, that's another funny thing, Bridge. Is my plays <laughs> are often done where I live. They're done all sorts of other places. So I don't even attend my plays very often. <laughs> when they were, yeah, they they come to, to Minneapolis, uh, not this last time, but you know, in the past. Uh, but they're all you know busy working folks right now too, so it's hard. Uh, and, and it's often the case when you have stuff published, you don't even know where it's being done until to much afterwards. You know, get a, you know your royalty payment from the, from the publisher and whatnot. Um, so uh, no, I don't. Uh, the, what's nice about plays for new audiences is that um, the woman running it now, Carly Jenkins, is letting me know who's planning to do the play, so I can be in touch. And, and offer my assistance if that's uh, required. So for example, another play I wrote for Children's Theater Company, which is not an adaptation, it's original work, but also another one that has no spoken word in it is called Balloonacy. And right now it's being done at the National Children's Theater of South Africa, you know, for an extended run. Uh, and so knowing about that, I was able to get in touch with the folks there and say, you know, if you need anything done, some rewrites, thinking about it, seeing, you know, let me know. And that hasn't happened, but it's nice to know. It's another place I won't get to to see the play, I don't suspect. So. Okay. Um, I just got a couple more questions. Okay. So what is like your dream <laughs> platform? If you were to say, I could pick whoever I want to work with, I could, that location, the actors, everything. Like, what's your big dream spot that you've made it? You're the, that's the top of the top. Well, I, I don't have those kind of ambitions, especially. What I like is the opportunity to be able to continue working. So 
when uh, I do a play that gets some notice, it might mean that somebody else will ask me to do something, which is really what I, I like. I, 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 I just started talking with another theater about another play based on a real life character. Whether it will happen or not, I don't know. But I have to tell you, in some sense, it's going to sound kind of goofy bridge. In a way, I'm living my dream. They're working. I've, I've now done five plays for the Children's Theater Company. A couple of them had remounts there too, and there's not a better theater and a better group of people to work with anywhere in the world, as far as I'm concerned. And so that's a joy, an honor, uh, a pure pleasure, and uh, I'm just grateful to have had those opportunities in, in my time as a writer. So uh, I think beyond that, a whole lot. Oh my gosh, yes, I would definitely agree. You're just remarkable. And you do see, it's very obvious you've been successful, which is shocking that you even have any kind of, you know, you worry that someone might not like your work because it's very obvious. Many people, many do. Um, so do you have any advice for someone that wants to do what mm -hmm. you do? Yeah, I don't think it's anything um, surprising, especially. You know, you mentioned doing what am I reading, what am I watching? I think reading and, and seeing plays, if you're interested in writing for theater, is very, very helpful. One of the great gifts of having been a stage manager for 17 years, or was an equity stage manager, in fact, for 17 years, was that I got to work with a lot of different directors and actors, and I got to see a lot of different plays. And that's a wonderful education in and of itself. Um, so there's that. And then the other thing I would say is just do it, uh, as silly as that sounds. And um, I don't necessarily believe in the well-made play or that, that's how important that is. Because uh, again, there are, there are a lot of experiments being done now that I think are really, really marvelous. Uh, and uh, I also think now with the, as new audiences are growing up, the young people are much more interested in a less passive experience. They don't just want to sit and be observers of a play. I think they actually want to take part in it, which is why I like doing things that are more immersive and interactive. And so I think as, if you're thinking of writing for theater, you might want to think along those lines too. How can you tell your story and involve um, the audiences in, in a sense, additional actors in the piece? Um, and those are kind of fun things to play with. It's always a wonderful thing if you can find um, people to read your play. Um, especially if they're good actors, because that's very informative too. Words that might look good on the page might not sound good coming out of someone's mouth. Uh, and you don't know that really until you get a chance to hear it, but it has to be done well, or, or it doesn't, that wouldn't be helpful. But that's all I'd suggest, go for it. Okay, and then just final question. Mm -hmm. So when you're finally, when you feel like you are ready to sit down, stop pacing and, and creating, and hopefully mm -hmm. that's still got many years to go, but you know, when you come to that point, where do you see yourself? I mean, where, what would you envision? Okay, I'm ready to be take a break, you know, be done, retire. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I don't know how to answer that question exactly, Bridge. Um, you know, I, 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 I think I always want to do something creative that just kind of feeds the soul a little bit, but I might turn to things like if I stop writing, just uh, put it around the yard. Uh, I. I the city I live in, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, has a project called, it's a lot of public art. In fact, I I'm, I'm sit on the public art advisory board and uh, one of the things is a poetry path. And it's really sort of fun. It's poetry presented in all different forms. Sometimes it's actually embedded in the concrete of the sidewalk. Sometimes it's up on, uh, on um, uh, ceilings like a, uh, the Sistine Chapel and the poems and there's art to go with it. Sometimes sculpture, sometimes painted. Um, 
And I've always wanted to make a parody path, you know, which would be sort of an immersive, silly version of the poetry path where there would be all these different stations around the town that would be interactive for people to, to explore and enjoy. And some of that's already happening without me uh, uh, in, in, in the town. So that's a place I could see going, just to find a way to, uh, to exercise my creative muscles in a new fashion, perhaps. Yes, you should make sure that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, that's all the questions that I have for you. Thank you so much for taking this time. And then is there anything specifically that you wanted to maybe talk about or tell the audience, the listeners that we have here in uh, well, St. Paul Frogtown? Yeah, just to go see Corduroy. It's the company, the Children's Theater Company has done a wonderful job of making it just a fun-filled evening that will be enjoyed by people of all ages. It's a funny thing when it's a picture book based on a picture book. So a lot of people might think, well, you know, if they're if they're kids in fifth grade or kids in eighth grade, they might not like this show. But in this production, you could like this. You will like the show no matter what age you are, and that includes adults without children. You just have to be young and hard. Uh, so that's one thing I would say. I'd really encourage them to come intended and you know, maybe surprised at how much they have an enjoyable time. And I have one last question for you, Bridge, if you don't mind. Oh, not that, at all, of course. That, I, your name is so cool. Tell me about Bridge Sky. Well, I legally changed my name, but I've had five names since I was born. I was adopted uh -huh. and kind of like a puppy. Um, <laughs> I was a completely different name. I was Donna Brune when I was born. And then wow. I went to a foster home and it changed to Bridget Sweetie. And then I changed to Bridget. And then I got married. So once I got divorced, I was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to pick a, because all my best friends shorten Bridget to bridge. They always okay. call me bridge. Okay. So I, I love that. So now everybody's my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just liked sky because I connect with mm -hmm. nature and I wanted something short and sweet. And so, yeah, it was, it was a piece of empowerment for myself, you yeah. know? Yeah. What's well, a great so, name. So I just really made me uh, want to want to learn more about you. So no, we'll have to another you. I get to ask you all the questions. Oh, yeah, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Bridge, thank you so much. It was really nice to meet you. And uh, You as well. If I, you know, if I can do anything else, you need any clarification or anything of that sort, don't hesitate to get in touch. Wonderful. And yes, I will get this is actually going to be coming out really soon. The okay, final version of this. really good editing because I'm not a very good puppet speaker. So I'm, I'll leave it up to you and make you sound halfway decent. Okay. Oh, you sound great. And yes, I'll definitely email it directly to you. So. Uh, Hey, thanks, Wonderful. Thank really you so much. Yep, thanks. Bye. Mission Control. Thank you for listening on WFNU 94.1 FM, Frogtown Community Radio, St. Paul, Twin Cities. Permission to land. You can hear Creators Canvas every Saturday at 11 a.m. on WFNU at 94.1 FM, St. Paul, and online at WFNU.org. Check out the Creators Canvas podcast on Anchor, Spotify, or YouTube to get the full-length extended interviews. Go to WFNU.org backslash creators for all the current information. Namaste.